Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. I lived on the shady side of the road and watched my neighbor's gardens across the way, reveling in the sunshine. I felt I was poor and from door to door went with my hunger. The more they gave me from their careless abundance, the more I became aware of my beggar's bowl. Till one morning, I awoke from my sleep at the sudden opening of my door, and you came and asked for alms. In despair, I broke the lid of my chest open and was startled into finding my own wealth. Good morning, my beloved friends. I have chosen to share these words written many years ago by Indian poet and Nobel Prize winner Rabindranath Tagore because, well, truth be told, I need to hear them. Maybe you do too. This beautiful poem startles me every time I read or hear it, reminding me of the simplicity of what he calls finding our own wealth. And yes, to be sure, we are in the midst of our annual pledge drive, but I am not talking about financial wealth this morning. I am talking about something afforded to all of us, regardless of our financial situation. The poem invites us to recognize what we feel is lacking in our life, and then with the growing awareness of abundance all around, accept the invitation to crack open our hearts and our chest and to be startled to find our own wealth. There are times these days when I reject that invitation to see that kind of abundance all around and instead stay on the shady side of the street. There are also times these days when I do manage to choose love and to find a way to engage my better angels. And in the end, I think that is in large part what today's very bizarre gospel passage is inviting us to consider, the power of choice, our willingness to stand up, to take note, to show up, to be present. The power instilled in each of us to accept or reject the invitation to show up every day is challenging. It's how we choose to respond to the people and circumstances in our lives. It's about how we choose to admit our mistakes and shortcomings. It's about how we choose courage over comfort, acknowledging our privilege in all its forms. It's about how we choose solidarity over self-protection. It's about how we choose to fight for the dignity and respect of every human being. So right about now, you might be thinking, how in the world 
did you get to that conclusion or invitation from the passage we just heard from the Gospel of Matthew? Bear with me. Truth is, I have never liked this gospel passage very much. The whole thing just kind of stutters along and doesn't quite work or make much sense, especially when you get to the poor guy who gets thrown out into the outer darkness for apparently not wearing the right party clothes. So where do we start? Sometimes it's helpful to compare scriptural material that appears in more than one gospel to get a sense of each author's particular interest and intent. In this case, a story much like this one appears in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, but noticeably absent of the violence. In Luke's version, someone, not a king, simply throws a great banquet, and when guests made excuses, the host, invite all, host invites all kinds of people, and especially people not normally invited to banquets, the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. This fits in very well with Luke's particular concern for the poor and all those who are disadvantaged and aligns with his theological commitment to God's eagerness to welcome all people into the kinship of God. Oh, that would have been a nice gospel to preach. Just saying. Matthew, however, is most likely caught up in his own turmoil. He is living and writing during a fierce conflict with local Jewish religious authorities. So scholars believe that he has taken Luke's earlier version of Jesus's parable and has adapted it in order to explain why and how his opponents really missed out. In fact, the reference to the king vanquishing his people and burning their city may reflect Matthew's conviction that the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, probably about 10 years or so before Matthew writes this gospel, was God's punishment for the rejection of Jesus by the religious authorities of the day. So what Matthew does is basically take Jesus's parable from years before and changes it so that it would be heard as an allegory. It becomes an allegory of salvation history a way of telling what Matthew sees as the central movements of God's actions and plans for all of human history. In this allegory, then, the first guests stand for Israel. The first two sets of slaves who issue the invitation represent the prophets of the Old Covenant, which is why some of them are beaten up and killed, hardly the usual way of declining an invitation. The city that is destroyed represents Jerusalem. In the second part of the allegory, the slaves who are sent into the main streets to invite just about anybody are the apostles, the followers of Jesus after the resurrection who brought the church together. And the church Matthew knew all too well was filled with both kinds of people, good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, deserving and undeserving. After all, everyone means everyone, good, bad, and indifferent. The second crowd responds differently from the first group, just as the church was very different from the leaders of Israel. 
the wedding hall is now filled with all sorts of guests. This precise moment in the story is Matthew's present day, present world, right then as he knew it. Matthew was expressing the early Christian belief that in spite of the words of the prophets and John the Baptist, Israel, especially Israel's leaders, had repeatedly ignored God's invitation to his great messianic banquet for his son, Jesus. So they are rejected, and the church is formed by the apostles. Remember, the apostles are represented in this allegory by the slaves who are sent to everybody else, to the lower classes, to the women, to the Gentiles, to the ones who had been ignored. And the apostles are told not to judge, but to invite. That was the way that things were when Matthew used this parable of Jesus to tell the story of salvation history. But even in these two very different times, Luke and Matthew, and two very different uses of Jesus's teaching as either a parable or an allegory, there is an invitation to examine what is different about the two groups in each of the tellings of the story. The first group, who is invited twice, by the way, and rejects the invitation, among some other harsh reactions, and then the second group, made up of all kinds of people. So the question is, what is the difference between those two groups? The only thing distinguishing the first group of guests from the second, from what I can tell, seems to be the second group shows up. Or to put it a different way, presence. The second group showed up and was counted. The wedding hall was filled with the second group of guests because they said yes, and they came. Because, I would like to believe, they were startled by their own wealth. The first group stayed on the shady side of the street for whatever reason. They were too busy, too important, too afraid, too forgetful, too arrogant. Whatever the reason they chose, they did not come. I guess Woody Allen was right when he said 90% of success is just showing up. That was, from what we hear, the only difference that I can find in the two groups of people. So circling back to where we began this morning, I think on any given day, we can find ourselves in either group, can't we? Either turning away or leaning in either rejecting the invitations we receive in our lives or not. I have not a shred of judgment about either response because we do both, probably every day. We are human and we need forgiveness and many do-overs much of the time. I know I do. We also need and are afforded when we take the time to notice acres of grace, allowing us to fall down and get up again and again and again. So tucked into this very disturbing gospel passage, I am grateful for the reminder of agency and the invitation to choose love and that showing up for God and for each other and for ourselves 
is often 90% of the journey. We don't earn or prove our worthiness as a prerequisite to being invited to entering any banquet. We get to show up with humility. We're asked to be present with courage and integrity and discover for ourselves the worthiness God already has known about us all along. That's when our lives begin to change. The choice to discover our own wealth lies, I believe, in our ability to accept the plethora of invitations to see another, to truly see someone else deeply, authentically, honestly. It means establishing the other person as our priority for a time. It means seeing them for who they are and not who we want them to be. It means opening ourselves to receive their life. It means the vulnerability of entrusting and giving our life to another. It means really listening to what they say and not just we, what we want to hear. It means letting go of our own agendas, distractions, fears, and prejudice and bias. It means bringing and offering all that we are and all that we have. It's an invitation that never expires, and even when we make our excuses or we forget to RSVP, God's love, God's love never runs out. The party is always waiting, and we are always invited and wanted, no matter what we're wearing. May we continue to find ways to source who we are and what we choose to do from that source of love, saying yes to the invitation to cultivate our lives of faith-filled generosity. May it be so.